Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 22, Dale Nance, The Burdens of Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Dale Nance. Dale is the John Homer Capp Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Dale teaches evidence and jurisprudence and has long written in the area of evidence and proof. Today's podcast features Dale's new book, The Burdens of Proof, Discriminatory Power, Weight of Evidence, and Tenacity of Belief, which is published by Cambridge University Press. In the book, Dale disentangles the burden of proof. He argues that while we commonly view the weight of evidence as a holistic concept, it really consists of two parts. The first he labels discriminatory power, which compares competing hypotheses, and the second he labels Keynesian weight, which measures the total amount of evidence. This basic insight allows Dale to explain and theorize many otherwise difficult to explain aspects of our evidentiary system, including burdens of production, adverse inferences, as well as various paradoxes. Dale, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, thank you, Ed. It's a delight to be here. Before we get into the meat of the book, my impression from your past work and the book's preface was that the idea for this book has been with you for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about its origins and how it came to fruition? Sure. It goes back a long way. When I first started teaching evidence, Jonathan Cohen's book, Probable and the Provable, had just been out for a couple of years and was much debated. And I participated in some of that debate, mostly tangentially, because I was trying to understand it and place it in the framework of other things that I had learned about law. And I found that I was quite fascinated by what Cohen had to say, and yet completely unconvinced of the particular things that he said. And this led me to perplexity. And I thought about it a long time before I was willing to put anything on paper. At the same time, while I was mulling that over, I was working on my own interests in evidence law, primarily developing some theories about the rationale of admissibility rules that I'm sure you're familiar with, starting with an article called The Best Evidence Principle, in which I developed the idea that rules of admissibility were often intended to control the adversarial impulses of litigants more so than attempting to control the irrationality of juries. And so while that was going on, I was writing a series of articles developing that idea. I was still mulling over the question of weight of evidence that Jonathan Cohen had introduced. And then I finally began to see where they came together and initially wrote something back some time ago, a short article called The Weights of Evidence, which I then elaborated in this book. The book breaks up the burden of proof into three main pieces, discriminatory power, weight, and tenacity of belief. Let me start off by having you explain those distinctions and telling the audience why that's important. Lawyers are familiar with the idea of weight, and they use the idea of weight commonly. There are references in the rules of evidence and statements by judges that will say things about weight. And usually it's in the context of distinguishing between admissibility, which is decided by a judge, 
and assessment of the evidence, which is decided by the jury. And so you'll hear judges say, that's not an admissibility question, that goes to the weight of the evidence. So weight tends to be a word that signals this is in the jury's bailiwick. As I looked at the contributions that Cohen had made and other people about the notion of weight, and I went back and looked at the work of John Maynard Keynes from which Cohen had drawn, I realized that what they meant by weight was really something quite different than what lawyers typically think of as weight. The weight that lawyers usually think of can be illustrated in a very crude metaphor by the scales of justice. We think of the evidence in one pan being the evidence that favors the complainant and the evidence in the other pan being the evidence that favors the defendant. It's a crude metaphor, but it's a very meaningful one, and that's why Lady Justice looks blindfolded and holding the scales. We think of the question of weight of evidence as comparative in the sense that that weight favors one side or the favors the other side. That comparative sense of weight is what I call in the book discriminatory power, because what we're interested in there is the extent to which the evidence favors one side over the other. And that sense of weight relates to the standards of proof, such as preponderance of the evidence, beyond reasonable doubt, and so forth. The sense of weight that was initially broached by John Maynard Keynes, and there had been some philosophers prior to that who had mentioned it, but Keynes developed it in a fairly rigorous fashion. The notion of weight that he was talking about was a completely different sense of weight. And the easiest way to see it in this metaphor of the scales is to imagine, let's say you have evidence that in the scales on one side and on the other side that produces a ratio of two to one favoring the plaintiff. And now you add evidence in a way that doubles the evidence in the pan for the plaintiff and doubles the evidence in the pan for the defendant. In such a situation, the net effect on discriminatory power is nil because you double the weight on one pan, you double the weight on the other pan, the ratio of the weights is still two to one. But something has changed. And that was what originally Keynes had talked about. Something was greater in this second example when you've added additional evidence. And he called that something weight. The central insight of the book is that when you talk about that sense of weight, it doesn't fit this language that lawyers typically use by which we assign the question of weight to the jury or to the fact finder. That in fact, weight in the Keynesian sense is a subject matter that is addressed by lawyers, by judges, by legislatures when they go through the process of regulating the amount of evidence that's presented to the fact finder for their decision. Let me offer two potential challenges to this distinction between discriminatory power and weight. The first is largely an analogy. So some people, particularly those inclined toward a Bayesian perspective, might think of weight as something akin to a Bayesian distribution. Let me elaborate. When the jury measures discriminatory power in this two-to-one ratio that you suggested or more traditionally in this 60% or 70%, there's uncertainty surrounding that measurement. It can be 60% and we're really sure of that, or it can be 60%, but really it could be anything between 30 and 90%, and 60% is just our best guess. Is your conception of weight here different from this Bayesian distribution description? And if so, why is the distribution view the wrong It is related to the distribution view. If you take a stochastic process and you add weight, you will get narrower confidence intervals, for example. This was the point that 
Neil Cohen made in an article in which he tried to use the idea of weight to describe a two-part test for the trier of fact. In his theory, the trier of fact had to not only decide whether the probability of the claim was high enough to meet some threshold, but also to decide some other thing that was related to what he called the resilience of the probability assessment. And in his model, he tried to say that it required the trier of fact to determine whether the risk of probability error for the plaintiff equaled the risk of probability error for the defendant. Those are related ideas. Problem is that once you try to push on the question of how confident is confident enough in terms of resilience, you come quickly to the conclusion that there is no standard that makes any sense other than be as confident as you can be given the economic constraints upon the acquisition of additional evidence. Cohen, for example, said that the only reason we had to worry about confidence intervals was that there is a theoretical probability that it would exist if you had the totality of all available evidence. And of course, there is no perfect amount of evidence that will give you precise measures of probabilities in real litigated cases. You're always ending up with some remaining uncertainty. And the question is how much uncertainty about that probability you're willing to accept. And that's a function of how much the acquisition costs are for additional evidence and how much you expect to gain by acquiring the additional evidence. So if you think about it in those terms, the Keynesian weight is related to that notion of resilience, but everything that you need to know about decision-making is contained in the idea of optimizing the amount of Keynesian weight that you have before you make a decision. And building in a second condition on what the fact finder does is a mistake. It adds a, another layer of complexity for the trier effect and also skews decisions away from the decisions that would maximize utility if you use a decision theoretic model or that would equalize fact errors for plaintiffs and defendants. Let me turn to that idea. One of the implications of your theory is that depending on the evidence that is available and how expensive it is, the weight requirement might require a different amount of evidence. You use an example in your book that before a chemical drug test is available, it's fine if we don't have it. But once it becomes available, then we should question or in fact demand that the drug test be used. Can you first elaborate a little bit more on this feature of your theory, and then we'll get into some more specifics? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about the difference between the assessment or the management of discriminatory power is that we understand the requirement of discriminatory power as being that evidence favoring the plaintiff or the complainant must exceed the degree to which it favors the defendant by some margin. And it can be that it just must be a balance of probabilities or greater weight of evidence, however you want to say it in civil cases, or some other measure. But that judgment is an assessment made of the evidence, as opposed to Keynesian weight, which involves a much larger degree of choice. That is, the decision maker assesses discriminatory power, but they choose Keynesian weight. They have choices to be made about how far to investigate, about what to get, what evidence to acquire before they make their decision. So the kind of decision is rather different. It doesn't have a get Keynesian weight over a certain minimum kind of structure. It has a weight of get Keynesian weight as high as you can get it within the reasonable resource constraints that you have. Does that mean then that it's not a cost-benefit analysis or is it? It is. It is a cost-benefit analysis, but it is differently structured. Instead of simply assessing how likely something is, making the choice on basis of a criterion based on likelihood, it's instead a choice about what further investigations to make. It's a choice about what to do as opposed to what to decide. 
in the case of Keynesian weight, that choice about what to do, how much to investigate, what leads to pursue and so forth, is done not by the fact finder ordinarily, but by other actors in the legal system. And that's one of the most important results that I try to articulate in the book. Since Jonathan Cohen, most of the efforts by theorists to incorporate weight have tried to build it into the fact finder's assessment, as Neil Cohen's example that we talked about a moment ago using resilience. And I think that that's a mistake because this second kind of weight, Keynesian weight, is almost entirely regulated by the litigation process controlled by lawyers, judges, attorneys, and the legislature that makes rules for how the evidence can be introduced. That process is what structures and attempts, not always successfully, to optimize the Keynesian weight that's presented to the fact finder. So it's a separate decision, and it is a cost-benefit analysis, but it's done in a very complex, structured legal way, rather than just having a unitary decision maker that is deciding a common sense decision about what to do. The weight requirement becomes a institutionally, or I guess better word for it is a systematically determined requirement. So in a class of cases, we want a certain amount of weight as opposed to one that depends on the specific context of the case. I don't make that particular claim. I do say that what we're willing to do in terms of exploring leads and investigating prior to making a decision does depend upon what's at stake in a case. And what's at stake can be very high or very low. It doesn't necessarily map, for example, to the criminal civil division. There is a sense in which criminal cases are more serious than civil cases, but you can have civil cases that involve huge amounts of resources and have great consequences for society. And you can have criminal cases that are really mundane and of no practical significance to virtually anyone other than someone who might get a traffic ticket. So the real importance is what's at stake in the case, not whether it's nominally labeled civil or criminal. Nonetheless, you know, if you were to average over criminal cases and average civil cases, it would probably be the case that at least for serious criminal cases, we want a more thorough investigation and the courts and the process of investigation may be set up to encourage that than in the average sort of civil case. That also means that, say we take a civil case, if the plaintiff's claim is $500, then we might require a certain amount of evidence. Whereas if the plaintiff's claim is $500,000 or say $500 million, then we would require more evidence to actually resolve the case. Well, we might acquire additional evidence, yes. And I, there's a case that's discussed in the book that was uh, decided by Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit that deals with exactly this kind of question. And he makes the comment in analyzing the case that this is a very small civil case. And because it is, we're not going to demand that the plaintiff do further investigation. But he implies that if it were a much larger, more serious case, we might very well demand further investigation, even though it is the case in both cases, hypothetically, that a reasonable trier of fact could decide by a preponderance of the evidence that the plaintiff should win funny result in some places, though, if you were more severely injured in an accident, you as the plaintiff would actually be required to produce more evidence than if you were more lightly injured, which seems a little counterintuitive to me. I think that you have to differentiate one important point. One of the consequences of the effort by people to build Keynesian weight directly into the decision of the jury under the standard of proof has been to 
use a default rule that says that when Keynesian weight is inadequate, it will result in a verdict against the plaintiff. In other words, that the plaintiff as the party who bears the risk of non-persuasion under the standard of proof will always bear the risk of an inadequacy of Keynesian weight. That I don't think is correct, because once you start looking at the rules that structure proof and that regulate the amount of evidence that's presented to a trier of fact, you find that in many cases, the burden of producing that additional evidence is placed upon defendants, not necessarily on plaintiffs. It depends on a variety of factors. One tool, for example, that's used, I think, poorly in many cases to try to optimize the Keynesian weight are adverse inferences where the judge steps in and says, well, I'm going to encourage the fact finder to draw an adverse inference against party because they're not producing evidence that I think that party ought to produce. And I think that's a mistaken use of the tool. But what's interesting about it is that it is often used against defendants as much as plaintiffs or prosecutors. You can see it used in all kinds of cases where the burden is allocated to the defendant. And the reason for that is because the process of optimizing Keynesian weight depends upon the costs of acquiring additional evidence. And in many cases, those costs are asymmetric. One side has a better ability to acquire the additional evidence than the other side. And when that happens, it's not uncommon for judges to impose that burden on the party that can produce it at least cost. This is a nice segue to one of the big advantages that I see to your theory, which is that it really does do a very remarkable job explaining how burdens of production work. Conventional accounts here seem to think about summary judgment as being cases in which, you know, if you were going to measure it on a zero to a hundred percent scale, it's something like if you don't reach twenty, then you get summary judgment. But that always seemed very odd to me, and I think your theory here helps to explain not only the plaintiff's burden of production, but as you suggest, the defendant's burden when you have adverse inferences and maybe something like race ipsa. Yes, I think that's right. So there is burden of production in a narrow legal sense, of course, which is a judge deciding that the case cannot go to a jury on the present state of the evidence. And one of my points in the book is that that decision sometimes is a function of the judge saying that the evidence is not strong enough for one side that a reasonable jury could decide in their party's favor. But other times, it is a function of the judge saying, although a reasonable jury could decide this either way, it's not appropriate to send it to the jury on the present state of the evidence when additional evidence could help to resolve the matter. And so in a burden of production is put upon a party for the purpose of disgorging information, getting it into the courtroom, which will help the trier of fact down the line. Let me go back to this distinction between discriminatory power and weight. In the book, you talk about how they're orthogonal, which I take to mean that you feel like they're completely independent of each other. It seemed to me that sometimes the two might be appropriately linked, and I wanted to get your take on it. If you have a case where it's a really close case, it would seem that you would want a lot of weight. You would want to have as much information as possible, whereas if you have an obvious case, it's not that important that we have all that much information. Does that suggest that there is actually a link between the two or there's a way of teasing the two apart? Yes, I agree completely with that comment. And I do say that at one point in the book. There is a, a sense in which they're connected, which is that depending upon the nature of the case, if the margin by which the plaintiff's case has exceeded the defendant's case, so the margin is you know five to one in favor of the plaintiff, what is likely to be acquired by expenditure of additional resources is not likely to make much difference in that. 
then you can see the court saying we're not going to impose a burden of production or use some rule to achieve that because it's not going to affect the result. I agree with that completely, but that's a fairly limited way in which they interact. What I was talking about when I said that they're orthogonal is that they're not part of the same judgment. And most of the attempts that have been made in the literature to take account of weight in the Keynesian sense have been to build it into the fact finder's decision in one holistic conception of epistemic warrant that says, well, the burden of proof involves some holistic conception of epistemic warrant that includes considerations of Keynesian weight and considerations of what I call discriminatory power. When you mix them together that way, you get a variety of paradoxes when you try to apply it to legal adjudication. Here is one example. Many people have argued that discriminatory power cannot be measured by probabilities, and the standard of proof can't be measured in terms of probabilities. And one of the reasons that is used for that argument depends upon the notion of weight. It runs like this. They'll say the epistemic warrant for the plaintiff's case can be low even when the epistemic warrant for the defendant's case is low. And that can't be a probability because probability is a zero-sum sort of thing. When the probability for the plaintiff goes up, the probability for the defendant must go down because they got a sum does it to one. And so the conclusion is that whatever epistemic warrant is that we're interested in, it cannot be measured by a probability. Now, my book effectively mutes that concern by saying, Well, you're really talking about two different things when you do that, because when they say that the epistemic warrant is too low to support the plaintiff's case and too low to support the defendant's case, that argument is usually supported by an example that says there's very little evidence on the issue. And what they're saying is that the Keynesian weight is very low. And what that translates into is an argument that it's not appropriate at this stage in the development of the evidence to choose between the plaintiff and the defendant. So saying that the epistemic warrant for the plaintiff's case is low is actually saying that the epistemic warrant to support a choice between the plaintiff and the defendant is low. Once you do that and separate out this of the decision-making, the Keynesian weight process and the discriminatory power process, then that argument disappears. Uh, because once you optimize Keynesian weight, then that part of epistemic warrant drops out of the formula, and all you've got left is the comparison of the strength of the evidence favoring the plaintiff and of the defendant, and that can be in a zero-sum relationship modeled by probability. The other important move that you make in your book is not only to carve these two apart, but to actually allocate the weight determination as a legal inquiry for the judge or the court. Why was that move important for you? Well, and it is simply a description of what we already do. It is a description of the allocation of roles that takes place in both adversarial and inquisitorial or relatively adversarial systems. We assign to the judge in an inquisitorial system the task of developing the evidence. We assign to the judge and the lawyers and under the rules of the legislature the task of creating the evidence upon which the jury will decide. So as an empirical matter, we we do separate these things. The question is, how can one understand that process? So one thing that I did was simply to say, well, you can understand it by saying that the Keynesian weight is assigned largely to the lawyers and the judges and, of course, the legislature, and that analysis of discriminatory power, which is an assessment, is done by the jury. In addition, if you remember a while ago, I mentioned the fact that the process of dealing with managing Keynesian weight is a choosing process. That is to say, the actors in the legal system choose how much weight upon which to proceed to a decision. 
That can be done by judges and lawyers in conversation and through the use of rules and application of rules prior to the end of the trial. But the process of choosing how much evidence upon which to decide is rarely something that a fact finder, at least a jury, can do. Now, if the fact finder and the judge are the same one, then it makes it possible to do that. But when those roles are separated, as in the case of jury trials, which still is the model for our adjudication, you can't do that because a jury simply has very, very limited ability to tell the parties that they want them to investigate more fully before the jury has to make a decision. About all they can do is to decide in retrospect that one of the parties didn't develop their case adequately. And that will be fairly arbitrary in terms of the relationship to the discriminatory power. And it will be virtually impossible for them to communicate that in their verdicts to the parties. By the nature and structure of the decision making, juries are in a very poor position to communicate with parties to encourage them to develop the evidence optimally, whereas judges are in a very good position to do that. A final question for you, Dale. Yeah. You've obviously done an enormous amount of work in this area. What, to your mind, are the big unresolved issues here? What should, say, junior scholars interested in these questions think about probing as they try to make a name for themselves? Well, one of the things that I mentioned fairly late in the book is that one of the great tasks for us is to try to synthesize all the different tools that judges use and legislatures use in order to optimize the Keynesian weight of evidence presented to fact finders. We have all these different doctrines, whether it's missing evidence instructions or discovery sanctions or admissibility rules or burdens of production, most of which developed in isolation of, of each other and they've evolved with their own kind of internal history and logic. Once you start thinking about them as connected, then there's the question of how to harmonize these various tools so that what you're doing in one place is not counteracting what you're trying to do in another place, or to put it differently, so that you have a coordinated effort by the judge in a trial to get before the jury the best possible package of evidence for the jury to decide upon. And I think there's a huge amount of work that can be done in terms of that. I mean, currently you look at cases and very rarely will a judge say, well, I'm going to pick a directed verdict in this case, peremptory sanction against a party, rather than the use of a missing evidence instruction for the following reasons. There are a few of those cases. I've found a few, but most of the time they just look at the doctrine that conditions the availability of, say, a missing witness instruction and ignore all the other options that are available to them and don't do any kind of comparative analysis about which option would be the better one for them to use in a particular context. I think scholars can have a profitable effort to try to coordinate these tools and make them more coherent. And for example, one of the things that I tried to do in a separate article, which is reproduced in part of this book, is to suggest why missing evidence instructions to juries are generally an inferior way of trying to solve the optimization of Keynesian weight problem. Well, Dale, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on your new book. I certainly learned a lot reading it, and I think this idea of Keynesian weight is a very important one, and I'm glad that we were able to get it out to our audience. Thanks very much, Ed. I really enjoyed it. One of the sad limitations of our short podcast format is that it is often difficult to do justice to the lengthy books that we sometimes feature. You can only cover so much ground in 20 to 25 minutes, and while the interview surely gives you a taste of the main argument, it necessarily glosses over nuance subtle insights, and the comprehensiveness of the effort. 
This regret couldn't be more true for me in the case of Dale's book. It is truly a tour de force. The literature review alone, in which Dale covers and carefully categorizes the considerable literature on burdens of proof, was a monumental effort, and it is and will be a wonderful reference for anyone interested in learning more about the field. And that's not even the main event. Dale's insight about splitting discriminatory power and Keynesian weight is a thought-provoking and fundamental one, and Dale takes great care fleshing out its implications and limitations throughout. None of those many insights, of course, is obtainable without sitting down with the book and giving it the time that it is due. But I guarantee you that you will come away both having learned a great deal and viewing burdens in a new way, whether you ultimately agree with Dale or not. In many ways, Dale's book is sure to become a classic, a worthy response to the L. Jonathan Cohen classic that inspired it. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.